I had a kid today drag me for my French pronunciation, and I was really embarrassed. Really? Yeah, because he was like, uh, does anyone know how to cut, count to 10 in French? And I was like, I do. And I said it, and then he was like, that was good, but your accent is too English. And I was like, thanks, asshole. <laughs> Uh, welcome to Project A+. My name is Hugh, your name is Hunter. Uh, this week on the podcast, we will be looking at a film and then some other films. Um, specifically... Specifically? Huh? We will be examining Kurosawa the Lesser <laughs> and his film Cure. I'm going to make a... I'm going to be a uh, contrarian and just... I know, and say he's the better Kurosawa. Yeah, he's the better Kurosawa. But to, truth be told, I haven't seen enough of either of their works to say. And I can only judge him from the one film that we watched for this episode of the podcast, which is Cure, the film Cure from 1997. I've seen two of both Kurosawa mm. films, because I've also seen Kyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse. When he was on life support? Yeah, yeah. And I pulled the plug. Um, anyway, in addition to the film Cure by Kyoshi Kurosawa, we will be also uh, continuing our exploration of the Iranian new wave. Mm. I'm not sure if we've defined the parameters properly, but no, Iranian not. cinema. Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Iranian art film. Iranian art film. Um, we'll be looking at the works of a new director yeah. now that we have dispensed with Abbas Kurosami. <laughs> well, not not quite. We've completely dispensed with No, him, no, no, not quite. And there'll not be quite. no connections no, no, with no. the films uh, we'll, we'll be examining today. Um, so we've moved from Abbas Kurosami to his assistant director on Through the Olive Trees. Mm. Slash actor in Through the Olive Trees. Yes. Uh, Jafar Panahi. Yes. And we'll be looking at two of his early films, his first two feature films, which are The White Balloon from 1995, I think. Yes. Maybe. That's what it says on Wikipedia. And The Mirror from 1997. Yes. The same year as The Cure. So no, no. this is a... Same year as Cure. <laughs> Sorry. The, yes. the Cure came... Uh, the first album came out in 70-something. Yeah, so. 79, I think. Three Imaginary Boys came out in 79, you're right. So what's next? Uh, what is next? Ah, uh... Reels on reels on reels on reels on reels Reels on reels on reels on reels Okay, so today, once again I had toast, but in contrast to uh, previous weeks, this was better toast. What? So it was t- some delicious Polish rye bread. And because the bread is good quality... Uh-huh. I don't need to go overboard with the condiments or the spreads. So I just put a thin layer of my uh, generic spread and no Vegemite or Marmite. Whoa. So I can just enjoy that delicious rye grain taste. Um, you know, I walked past a store uh, yesterday when I was walking to a Japanese bookstore mm-hmm. um, that was selling Vegemite toast. Wow. For, for $3. As in, like, as part of, like, a cafe menu? Yep. That's great. You should have totally done that. It was three fucking dollars. That's cheap. No, it's not. For toast, three dollars. For toast. That is cheap. Okay, well, next time I go to the ca- that bookstore, I'll get some just for you. It's just so I can experience it. Like, so, so toast as a menu item. <laughs> okay, let's move on. <laughs> I mean, that's about normal, I would say. Like, it's like, it's like 
you could probably get it for five or six dollars Australian, well, which is more than that. You, uh, I would never uh, pay that much for toast. So. I feel like if I'm going to eat Vegemite, I'm going to do it the way that you do, which is to say, buy myself a canister of cheap uh, garbage um, uh, margarine and, and put it on some toast. Hmm. So I have on occasion ordered toast at a cafe yeah. um, out of thriftiness, just because it's, it's usually the cheapest menu item if you want to eat something. Right. It's still too expensive. And the worst part is they're like, oh, obviously everyone has their own requirements in terms of what they prefer um, when it comes to ratios of butter to Vegemite yeah. or whatever. So they, they just give you like a dollop of butter on the side and a little canister full of Vegemite, some sort of vessel uh-huh. to hold the Vegemite. And then you have to basically assemble the toast yourself. Yeah, so dude. you're paying for them to toast bread. Yeah, you had, the, you had full fucking service. One time, this was funny. One time... Oh um, my God. Wait, wait, is this going to be funny? Yeah, we're getting off topic. It's great. <laughs> it's like the old days. Um, one time a friend, a friend and I, uh, we meet up like once a year, uh-huh. like an old high school friend. And uh, we're both pretty indecisive. So when we meet up we end up wandering around the central business district of Melbourne. The CBD. For hours before landing on uh, a place to eat because we just don't know where to go. And um, there's this famous uh, laneway Uh where there's a lot of spruikers, if that's the right word, who stand outside the restaurant and try and entice um, foot traffic into the restaurant. What are they called? Barkers. Barkers, yeah. Like in a carnival. Yeah. Um, yes. So what, whatever that is, a barker. So there's, there's a whole like infestation of them on this particular strip <laughs> of cafe. Uh, I don't know if I like this, you. So I was walking down this strip and because both of us are introverted, we resent being like sprung upon by these uh, restaurateur barkers mm. and put on the spot and uh, pressured into patronizing their establishments. So our rule was that we would go to the first restaurant on this strip that would not approach us yeah so we ended up at this restaurant that uh, was completely empty (laughs) that's funny and uh, i ordered a vegemite toast and a flat white Uh the flat white was one of the worst things i've ever consumed liquid or solid and uh the vegemite toast i just asked for toast and she's like oh yeah what do you want i was like i don't know vegemite Mm. And I assumed I didn't need to specify that there would also be a layer of butter as a buffer between the bread and the Mm. Vegemite. Mm -hmm. But obviously I did need to specify that because I just got a thick slab of Vegemite spread across the bread dry. And it was disgusting. It was a great story. Was it worth the journey? Yeah. It wasn't really about the, the, the destination. It was more about yeah. the journey, right? <laughs> so just, just to make sure you got, you got bad Vegemite. That's the, that's the story. That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Vegemite, the quality of the Vegemite itself was fine because it was just it's, everyone used the same really, Vegemite. Yeah. But the application was flawed. Really scraping the uh, bottom of the barrel. No, I, I think the jar was quite full when... Uh, All right. Yep. All right. Alright. Good stuff. So, uh, this is let a me, return let me, to form. Shut up. Let me get, go through my meals really quickly. What, are you, what did you eat today? <laughs> Us returning to form, me, me wanting to beat you to death. Yes. <laughs> so, let's see. Breakfast, I had uh, a half cup of cereal and some... 
God, I sound like such a maniac. A half cup of ginger uh, granola cereal. Wow. And I already hate you. <laughs> and, and some egg whites. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but not because of health reasons, because I don't like I don't like having yolk yolks. What 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 do you mean some egg whites? So I boiled an egg. Hard boiled egg whites. <laughs> boiled an egg. You ate hard boiled egg whites. Yeah. I boiled an egg. Let me, let me finish. I don't like yolk. I don't like how it tastes. Uh, and so I ate the white of the egg, and that's it. That's disgusting. <laughs> no, like, the not. yolk is the only good bit of the egg, yolks in my be, opinion. Yolks are sick. I hate them. I do not like them at all. I'm literally the reverse. Wow, that's so funny. Um, so yes, had that for breakfast, then I had some leftover, um, uh, Israeli couscous, uh, and some stuffed, uh, peppers for lunch. Mm-hmm. And for dinner, I just had some salmon and some uh, corn salad and some um, bread. That's what I had for food. All right, that's Reels on Meals. What is it? Meals on Uh, Meals. Reels on Meals, yeah. I do like the fact that that every week I basically describe having toast. (laughs) And you describe all these... These fancy, uh, bougie millennial meals. <laughs> Suck my dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good. It actually sounds. It actually sounds like you eat. You eat a, a variety of healthy, nutritious, delicious things. Right. I do try. Okay, so now on to our our feature presentation. Uh, so Kyoshi Kurosawa's um, debut film, <laughs> no, his basically his mid-career film, Cure. His first big breakout success, I think. Well, definitely internationally. That's what I mean, breaking out of the, the bounds of Japan. Yeah, the, the J- Japanese ghetto. Mm-hmm. Cure, good, bad movie, what is? Yeah, what is, before we get to good, bad movie? Me set up, you set up, both of us set up. I think these days we both volley back and forth clumsily until we've <laughs> said enough. Yeah, it's a great effect. Yes. So it's, I, I kind of like this new this new way of doing it. Is, it is awkward. I got sure. sick of writing the, the little synopses. <laughs> yeah, I just don't have enough. I, I just have, I've been uh, obsessed with watching Neon Genesis Evangelion recently. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, which we'll talk about not to this week, but maybe two weeks from now. Oh my god! Rewatching, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I watched. I watched six episodes of it on Sunday. How many times have you gone through the uh, run? I have only watched it uh, through one time previous to this when I was a teenager. So it's been a while. I see you're revisiting it after yeah. years apart. Yes, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. Just like how Shinji Akari has been separated from his father Gendo Akari for many years. What do these words mean? Uh, you should watch Evangelion. It's on Netflix now. Ah. I just bought a Sailor Moon t-shirt. I'm, I'm going fully anime now. How does that make you feel? I feel politically threatened. <laughs> Why? He's afraid to stare a real uh, Chad in the face. <laughs> yep. Wait, what are the non-Chads called? What are the incels called? Incels. 
do they have like a? I don't think they have like. Do a, have I don't like think they a, have a colloquial like boy name. Oh, that sucks. That'd be great. Yeah, but I might be. I may be wrong about that. But obviously, there are. Um, you know, of course, there's the two types of women: uh, Becky and Stacy. What's the difference? I don't know. I, we probably shouldn't get into incel lore again. Um, what are we doing? We were talking about Cure. So what's the film Cure? <laughs> no, we were talking about Evangelion. <laughs> Cure. So Cure is a film uh, about a spate of serial killings that have rocked Japan. Yes. But Hugh, what is different between these serial killings and all other serial killings? Well, in each of the cases, they have found and arrested the perpetrator. Yes. But the killings all follow the same pattern, even though they have not released the details of the murders to the public. So they're not sure why this pattern keeps reoccurring, as if it's the same killer, yet they've got all these different killers who have have confessed and, and been caught. Yes. What's going on? What is going on? How can so many different people commit this seemingly the same act? It's a great question. Um, anyway, the pattern is uh, a, a, an X slashed across their throat. Yes. Or body somewhere. Yes. And in each case, it seems there doesn't seem to be any plausible motivation for the murders. Yeah, I guess that's that's true. So, of course, whenever there's a... Yeah, a heinous bunch of murders, there's going to be a cop tracking them down. That's right. What's, what's our cop's name in this film? I don't remember it. Kenichi Takabe. Okay, I'll accept that. And also, who who is he joined by? Who's the other part of his intrepid investigative team? A psychologist named Sakuma. Yes. And that's about it, right? Is there any other plot details you think about it? They investigate the murder. Yeah. Um... It's not really a murder mystery because you find out who's responsible pretty early on. You do indeed. And that is this strange amnesiac. Well, potential amnesiac. Who comes into contact with these people and essentially hypnotizes them using either a flickering light source, Mm. such as the the flame of a lighter, Mm. or in some cases, water. Yes, so Dripping the two, from a ceiling the two, or from a spilt cup. The two opposite elements, fire and water, bound together in this one man, this hypnotist. That's right. What is the hypnotist's name? Uh, Mamiya. Yeah. <laughs> Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Hugh, what did you think of the film Cure by Kyoshi Kurosawa? I thought it was pretty solid. I liked it. Yeah, I feel the same way, pretty much. So one thing I appreciate is the way... Kurosawa approaches the material mm. because, as you may have noticed from our um, summarization of it, many elements of this story are familiar and, you know, kind of boring. Yes. And they were probably familiar at the time, mm. 1997, but they're well and truly stale now, I think. So we've got this yeah. mysterious serial killer. Yes. A pattern of murders connected by a symbol. A genius tormented detective. A, yep, a detective who has, who has personal problems, um, who starts to develop a connection with the killer yeah. and that sort of rote psychology that, that goes along with yeah, that. Et cetera, we et even get a grainy VHS tape to align us with J horror as well. Um, but I like the way that he denies us those expected beats. Yes. As, as we've already alluded to, there's never really much of a mystery as to who is responsible. No, it's, That's it's like the, really it's like the second or third scene where you see who, who's doing it pretty much. And it's revealed pretty matter of factly. It's not like a, a sudden revelation. And there's also something deadpan about the depiction of violence. Oh, which makes it more horrifying. Yeah, especially during the, the film's first half. Mm. It's never accompanied with dramatic music. 
nor even the sounds that that typically accompany murder on film. There's a sequence in this that's pretty much the second like shot or the second like sequence of the film where uh, a prostitute is murdered in a hotel room. There's a sequence where where a man is like swinging a a pipe at a at a at, at this woman and. You expect this like loud clanging noise or something, but it just is like a, this dull thud, and it's so like horrifying and, and horrifyingly shot too, because it's like this really like sort of long shot that really like minimizes them in the frame. So yeah, so not only do we not, do we not get the the big music cue, mm. nor the big sound effect, mm. we don't even get anyone screaming. No, at really any point in this film, the closest we get is during the detective's hallucination of his wife um, um, hanging herself in the kitchen. He sort of goes as if he's about to scream, but yeah. this sort of meek noise ends up coming out, this yeah. meek sort of uh, whimper. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's literally not, not a scream in this entire film. No. It's also not even really scary or thrilling. No, not especially. We're sort of kept a little bit at a, at a distance, and it seems to opt for this cryptic, faintly unsettling mood. Yeah. And there's no catharsis no even struggle when the supposed villain is ultimately defeated. No. So it's kind of like an abstraction of the genre. Yeah, it is. Um, and there's kind of like this mesmeric effect, dare I say it, with the, yeah. <laughs> with the recurring motifs here, both visually and orally. There's the, the ambient hum of washing machines, water coursing out of pipes, blinking lights, there's rusted machineries and all these dilapidated rooms and buildings what did you think of it yeah i agree it has this like really um you know sort of dreamy and and unsettling atmosphere that it really conjures incredibly well Mm. kurosawa is obviously like a master of this sort of like those sorts of like filmic techniques of generating these moods i think yeah i found this really unsettling and strange uh and i I quite i I don't know if enjoy enjoy is the right word but I, i think it's really expertly crafted and it really uh, does what it seems to be intended to do, which is disorient you and and um, take these sort of like you know as we we've, we've talked about like really familiar genre tropes and like um, turn them on their gear slightly and make them make them strange and, and unfamiliar. Mm. As we, we talked about, though, like the murder sequences are really like distressing, <laughs> um, even if they're not like especially scary. But yeah, and I think I think there's some like interesting like social commentary that you can read into this too. Yeah, I was wondering about that because there's, I guess there's an extent to which the film could be seen to be about repression. Yeah. Because we've got this malevolent amnesiac hypnotist coaxing out repressed desires, supposedly. Yeah, and the film and the film sort of like situates you in a world where people don't really articulate their true feelings to people around them too. Yeah, and that's that's embodied in the the character of the detective yeah. who's dealing with a, a mentally ill wife. Yes, and he has to. He feels like he has to keep everything bottled up. Yeah, <laughs> I really like the scene where the 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 villain is like, "You want to know which one is, yourself is the real self? There is no real self. There isn't. You don't actually exist at all." <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was good. Um, what did you make of some of like the uh, you know performances and stuff like that? I thought, were, I thought they were pretty like pitch perfect. Yes, but I thought like initially I thought um, Koji Yakusho, who plays the uh, detective, mm. was a little bit bland, but that kind of comes to work for his character. Yeah, for sure. And he does deal. He does handle the sort of transition to this more open, tormented figure at the end ably. I think. Yeah, like this the scene where he imagines that his wife has like killed herself. Is I thought it was really acted really well. 
so startling and strange and, and disturbing, just the way it's filmed. And I think it, it, he's well cast because his face is kind of mask-like in a way. Yeah, it is. So it kind of works for this this character who does essentially wear a mask to keep a lid on his emotions. Yeah. There are a lot of Japanese like artworks about people having, you know, <laughs> public and private faces and stuff like that. Mm. Sort of realized. And um, I know Kurosawa goes on to work with him a number of times. Yes. Uh, is this make you more interested in exploring some of Kurosawa's other films? Yeah, I'd watch some of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, apparently, the one that is premiered at, is premiering at Venice this year is really good. I've heard really good things about the film Creepy too, which I watched the first ten minutes of, and then was like, I don't want to watch this. So that settles that. So it's rubbish. Yeah, probably terrible. But uh, you know, obviously, I'm going to write about him in detail when I do my uh, doctoral. Uh, my um, doc- uh, what do you call it? Thesis. No, I can't even remember. Dissertation. Dissertation. That's it. On uh, you know, direct to DVD Japanese filmmakers because mm. of course he came from uh the v cinema series uh the wonderfully titled suit yourself or shoot yourself i did like his dynamic camera work here mm. me too um he's, he has a particular fondness for tracking shots yeah but they work really well like there's a, the, a great early sequence where we first come across the the culprit in these murders um wandering along the beach yeah and the camera just tracks back and forth um, from yeah, you're, a, you're not really sure what the important information is. Um, so I did say earlier that it subverts a lot of these serial killer tropes, right? Yeah. I did think at the time some of it was a little dull to me just because it was so familiar, mm-hmm. even if it was done a little bit differently. But there's a way that the film lingers with you after the fact that I think is a testament to the way it was put together. You no, know, it becomes more dreamlike as it goes along as well. And he adds, like, sort of odd surrealist touches. Like, there's this great shot where uh, the detective is taking his wife to a, a mental hospital. Like, the bus that they're gone is, like, this It's like this bizarre... It, it, it exists in this, like, weird nether space, essentially. Yeah, it looks like it's driving through the clouds. Yeah. You're, you're not really quite sure what to make of the, the ending of the film, too. What did you think of that? Not the, not the like, the final confrontation with the villain, but the, the bit in the uh, diner. The here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel set up, is what you're saying? I mean, I mean, like that's that's standard for horror. Yeah, yeah. Like thought everything was over, but nothing's really. I do think it is real. I think I, I enjoy the way how ambiguously it's filmed in that sequence too. Because I've read something saying the suggestion is that it's actually all coming from the detective. It's his mm, his delusions that have yeah whatever. I'm sure you could read that into it, but it doesn't really matter. It's it's just one of those. No, it does seem like a, just a genre. Huh? Yeah. I think it actually does work in the context of this particular story because we've already been sort of denied the pleasure of the bad guy being defeated by the way it actually happens in this film. Yeah. And it's just saying, well, even though now he's dead, it doesn't even matter. Like, nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> it's still... This horror is still there, this terror, whatever this force. Yeah, like the, the trauma is not going to go away because this guy's been killed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So on that level, I think it does work, even though it, it's something we've seen in a number of horror films. Yeah, I agree. I just really like the way it's shot is like this sort of like long, you know, like tracking shot as we talked about. You're never really quite sure like what's happening exactly. It's the manifestation of repression in Japanese society. It's going to kill us all. In a deadpan way. I wonder if this film, um, not to like do too much like, you know, like, oh, this film is social criticism, but I wonder how influenced it was by the uh, gas attacks. 
I read a few reviews that mentioned that, yeah. Because I, I can sort of see how that idea would emerge from those attacks, you know. You know, seemingly ordinary people suddenly murdering people for like some perhaps bizarre religious purpose. Kind of like hinted at in this too. Yeah, and I really thought that there's a gore effect where um, one of the killers is like peeling off. I thought that was so disgusting. <laughs> I mean, we should explain peeling peeling the skin off the face of of a victim. And like you know, it takes a lot for a gore effect to really get to me. But I guess it's because so much of the film is sort of you know presented kind of um, matter effectively or dispassionately, like, like the violence. I mean, there's like one moment of like shock gore was just like so like. So grotesque. Yeah. I think we did a pretty good job of wrestling with that. What do you think? We nailed it. We fucking Yeah, we, we fucking... <laughs> pizza time. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza. Lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a pizza. Sorry, dig them fights. I haven't had any pizza. I have not thought about pizza at all. Me, so. yeah. <laughs> pizza time over. But pizza story. Just another chance for our audience to enjoy the theme song. Yeah. Um, Which you probably still haven't heard. No, I don't think so. Wow. I don't have a lot of free time these days, buddy. To even listen to the podcasts you make. I really don't like listening to my own voice. Feeling spiritual, <laughs> sorry. Anyway. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay next project time it's project time 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 Next up, we're going to be looking at the films of Jafar Panahi as part of our exploration of Iranian cinema. So who is, who is Jafar Panahi, my friend? Uh, he's a filmmaker. As he said, the ex-assistant of Abbas Karastami. Yes. You know, it seems like he started as a documentary filmmaker, according to Wikipedia, what I'm looking at right now. Just making little shorts and stuff. Yeah. And his first narrative short was, in fact, a homage. He was a tailor. <laughs> was he? Because <laughs> he's making little shots. <laughs> I hate you. Anyway, sorry. I don't, I don't even really do this anymore. <laughs> he was Kiristami's assistant director on Through the Olive Trees, and he had aspirations to become a filmmaker himself. And he told Kiristami the idea for what would eventually become The White Balloon. Mm. Kiristami thought there was something there. He agreed to help him with the screenplay. And essentially, they just had conversations in the car that um, Panahi recorded. Uh, they made a Kiristami film. Yes. And then that resulted in them, him making a film. 
So, yeah, Kurosami essentially dictated the screenplay in conversation form Mm -hmm. um, and later revised it. And that was what became the screenplay to The White Balloon, which Jafar Panahi directed. Mm. So what is The White Balloon? What happens in it? Uh, Well, there's a little girl. Uh Uh-huh. And a white balloon. Uh Uh-huh. And a hundred Tomin note. A five hundred Tomin note. Five hundred Tomin note. No. And she wants to get a fish. It's the new year. Yes. Um, her name is her name is is Lisa, of course. Lisa? Is that what it was in the YouTube version? It was Lisa in the in the bizarre subtitled version that I watched. But in uh, in reality, it is Razia. Same difference. <laughs> and there is also a character named Martha. I was never quite sure who Martha was supposed to be. Yeah, so like the as part of the uh, New Year's celebration, the ritual, it is seen as a sign of good fortune to have a goldfish or something, or some sort of fish. And um, the family already does have a pond with fish in it, mm. but this little girl is dissatisfied with the, the type of fish that they have, and she wants a plumper fish. Yeah, it has big fucking gills on it. And uh, so she's nagging her mum... To, to get this this fish for New Year. And her mom's like, we've already got fish. Our neighbors like our fish. That's proof that our fish are good. You don't need you don't need this fat fish. You don't need these fancy fucking fish. But she wears her mom down with the help of her brother. Yes. Her mom's like, here's 500 Tomans. Go buy 100 Tomin fish. So she races off. And immediately loses the money. Yep. In a picaresque series of events occurs, she tries to recover the money. That's right. That's basically the film. Not when you would describe a plot-heavy film. No. In the tradition of, say, Abbas Karastami. <laughs> we should start by acknowledging the fact that this film does exist in the shadow of Karastami to some extent. Yes. Um, and obviously, Karastami wrote the screenplay for it. Yes. But um, more specifically, the film owes a debt to Where is the Friend's Home? Mm-hmm. And I've also heard some of Karastami's earlier films uh, centered around children as well. Uh, in that it tells this simple, fable-like story... From the perspective of a child. But it marries that sort of fabulous story with near-realist sort of aesthetic. Yeah. And some lashings of light social commentary here and there as well. Yeah. Um, But it's worth pointing out the fact that we do have a female protagonist here. We do. And Panahi has made a lot of films with female protagonists. Yes, indeed. So here there's no over-commentary about the role of women in Iranian society, Mm. but it does prefigure what would then become a central theme in his filmography. Yes. And indeed, I do think the best part of this film Mm. is Ada Muhammad Khani's performance Mm -hmm. as Razia, which I think actually exceeds that of Babak Ahmedpour Mm -hmm. in Where is the Friend's Home? Mm -hmm. I thought she was brilliant in this film. Yeah, I thought she was pretty good. Pretty good. Jesus, man. She is a great performance. And I think it's genuinely heartbreaking to watch as she's nearly manipulated out of her money by these snake-charming <laughs> grifters. I gotta admit, uh, this film did not make much of an impression on me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, we forgot to say if we liked this or not. Uh, I thought it was okay. What did you think? I, I liked it more than you, I think. I guess I'm just, I'm just resistant to this type of film now, <laughs> I think. It's my mm. problem. And I also watched it, I was like pretty tired, you know, having coming off of work. So that's going to be, that's going to be kind of the, my opinion towards both of the films today, actually. Not to spoil uh, the mirror. Not to spoil the mirror by saying, I have the same opinion yeah. about the film, The Mirror. Not to spoil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Fair, okay. <clears throat> so you were tired. This didn't really connect with you. No. You thought it was okay. Yeah. You were not tired. It connected with you. You thought it was great. I was not tired. I was... Uh, I'll tell you what I was doing. Drinking off. I watched both these films back to back, The White Balloon and The Mirror. And uh, the reason I watched them back to back was to kill time until the, the streaming service refreshed its content, which happens at 11.45 on this particular streaming mm. service for one of our network channels here, and allowed me to access the latest episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Which has ended years ago, basically, in America. Yeah, but it's taken this long to get to network TV. It's not even on like a Netflix or anything yet, mm. so I have to go week by week. Mm. Th- this latest episode wasn't its best, unfortunately. It had a little kid in it, and it was annoying. I hate children. Whereas these little kids are not annoying. Anyway, back to the film. Uh-huh. I I think this was a good film. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I thought it was fine. Like, there's nothing, like, wrong with it. I was just like, okay, you know, I get it. I understand. I just, you know, I, I, just, I just think I can't enjoy anything unless it has, like, at least one, you know, sort of autistic, terminally depressed child uh, driving a mech suit. Fair enough. I just think I can't, I, I can't enjoy anything anymore without that. Well, so, so I thought this film was successful. And I think one of the film's achievements is how wholly invested it makes you, and I guess maybe just me, if not you, yeah. um, in the goal of its protagonist. Yeah. And I, I do like the fact that unlike Where is the Friend's Home, mm. her quest is not inherently sympathetic. No. I also like that, too. It is a little selfish. It's only Panahi and Muhammad Khani's performance that makes it so. Mm. And it just, it, it really puts you in more of a child's perspective because it's, it's like, she's kind of going on a silly quest just to get a better looking fish. In terms of Panahi's directorial style, mm. comparing him with his mentor, mm-hmm. uh, it feels a little more understated, I would say. Maybe a little, a little closer to cinema verite, at least superficially. Like he doesn't traffic in the same sort of memorable, iconic compositions that Kiristami often does. Mm-hmm. So especially in Where is the Friend's Home, there are a lot of iconic imagery yeah. and locations used in it. Yeah. And this seems to be going for something deliberately more understated. Yeah, for sure. Part of this is to do with just where it was shot, you know? Yes. But I do think his style is deceptive, and I think there's a little bit more going on than there initially appears to be. Sure, sure. It's also interesting to note that it essentially unfolds in real time in the lead-up to New Year's. Yeah. And we get these occasional reminders through radio broadcasts and the dialogue of other characters about how close we are to this event. And, um, mm-hmm. end of thought. <laughs> I was like, I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just an observation. Nice try. But yeah, I was, it's a simple, it's a fairly simple story. Yeah. But I was taken with it and I was charmed by it mm. and especially by the central performance I did enjoy I, I thought the first like maybe two thirds were pretty whatever I did enjoy like the last bit of it mm. more I guess well we already talked about the fact that it prefigures his later work where he explored the role of women in Iranian society more explicitly but it also sort of portends his clashes with the Iranian government mm, for sure and I mean, I don't think they had any issues with the film itself or Panahi at this particular juncture. No. But for political reasons, they did try to deny the film's inclusion in the Academy mm-hmm. Awards for Best Foreign Film. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe there was some issue with its inclusion in, in Khan and stuff like that as well. So, mm. but then that would go on to become one of the defining traits of his career yeah. was his clashes with the Iranian government. But we'll get to that to the point where he is officially barred from making films now, and yet he persists. So shall we move on to his next film? Yes, The Mirror. Let's do it from nineteen ninety seven. Stop it. No. Stop the recording. I'm not doing this. I don't, it makes me sound like I'm a little kid. I don't need my mummy. I'm going home. So here we have what seems to be another relatively simple story. Anchored by another, I think, astonishing performance. This time by Ada's own sister, Mina Muhammad Khan. Ah, uh, that's what they look like. They're the same person. <laughs> so what's this movie about? Um, Mina, the main character, uh, has... Mm-hmm is waiting for her mother outside of her school. Mother fails to pick her up. Basically, she starts this long trek uh, back to her house. And that's, that's, that's basically all of the plot at the beginning, half of the film. And basically the entire film entirely. But then what happens? Then all of a sudden, there's a bus sequence um, where the reality of the film is busted into by Panahi what? himself saying, don't get the camera. You can't do that. This is a film. She, she, uh, enraged by her treatment at the hands of these, these men, stamps off, throws the cast that had been adorned, lovingly placed on her arm, into the bus. Probably ruins it. Ruins the bus. Storms wow. off and then makes her way home. Yeah. And makes her way home. And the rest of the film is a sort of documentary or pseudo-documentary capturing of her, the actress playing Mina, making her way home. Yes. What did you think of this one? We already know because you really. I, I do like this one better than than um, the previous one. I'll say. Okay. Uh, still, just a little. I thought the first half was just like I just like don't even care, you know. But I think that's a, that's that actually works in its favor. Yeah, I, I agree. But also the second half, I was like, this is interesting. And then I was like, this is long. Mm. And I just felt tired. Again, not a long film. No, <laughs> but it felt long. Yeah. I'd, like to, I'd, like to see, I'd like to see you fucking work six hours, then come over and watch never, fucking never. the beer. Never again. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> no more work. Um, yeah, so let's focus, let's focus on this film's uh, central trick, I guess, which is that turn from what seems like a standard fiction story but to... But I will say, I will say, I bet I would have liked this film more if I hadn't known that that turn was happening, coming. Oh, you already knew. Yeah, because it it's... Not spo- spoiler is not the right word, but Panahi's this is not a film contains clips of this moment, so I knew it was right. knew it was going to happen, and it sort okay. of was like I was just like maybe that's why it would contribute to my dissatisfaction with the opening segment where I was like, all right, let's just get to the part where they do the thing, and I mean like I think it could be seen like as a little tiresome, right? Yeah. Especially in the context of. Iranian cinema at the time yes. where this kind of blurring of documentary and fiction so common. is a signature aspect of, of what was going on, right? Mm. But I actually think that it holds up to scrutiny. It's almost like a, it's almost like a rebuke to the opening segment of the film to a degree. It, it is, yeah. It's about Mina, and I should say the, the character of Mina because she plays a version of herself. Yeah. Um, taking control of her own narrative. Yeah, essentially. And... You've already alluded to this, but it has broader political implications when you consider the limited agency of Iranian women yeah. during that period. And during the current period. 
Yeah, and during the current period. And there's something even sinister about the way that that agency that, that she is afforded by sort of breaking free of this narrative yeah. is tempered by the surveillance-like camera, which then follows her unawares as she journeys back to her house. For sure. And still records her via her mic that she's left on. Yeah. And I do also think that it works as self-criticism as well. Because yeah, the agree. opening stretch of the film establishes a similar tone to what we had seen in The White Balloon. Yeah where we have this young girl going on a quest to find her mother and get back home. And then this series of trials that she has to endure. Yeah. And then she just breaks out of it and says, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm yeah. not going to play the part you want me to play. Yeah. The difference is really accentuated by the fact that like, you know, the, the version of Mina in the film is unable to like get home by herself. While the, the real quote unquote real Mina is boy more of a scrapper and, and someone who's able to like completely do it herself, you know? Hmm. And the self-criticism also extends to the fact that if this were real, which it's not, this didn't actually happen this way, it would be like a morally dubious decision on the part of Panahi to keep filming her and recording her when she's specifically not given her consent to that. Yes. Um, So he kind of of makes himself a little bit of a villain in this piece. (laughs) Yeah, then he hypnotizes the girl to kill her mother. That's what happens at the end. And sort of once again... We have bits of social commentary sort of around the periphery of the film. Yeah. Actually, I thought, thought one of the more clumsy moments is when she enters into that taxi cab and this, like, you know, a man is just arguing about how women should be subservient to... It was, it was, it was uh, gilding the lily a bit too much, I think. Yeah, yeah. And actually, actually, parts of this film also reminded me of uh, Close Up. Mm. Um, specifically, like, the malfunctioning uh, uh, audio recorder. Yes, I was reminded of that as well. And once again, like you're not sure if like your stream has failed or yeah. something. Um, but yeah, I think I think this film is is pretty good. Yeah, I liked it. I was a little harsh on it earlier. I, I think it. I, I it, the white balloon either was kind of boring, except for the in sequence. But uh, I enjoyed this one much more. I just think I think I just find Neo Rio to be such a boring like uh, default style. I think. I don't. But I don't think these really quite qualify as, as neorealist films. No. I mean, I feel like the white balloon is more neorealistic-y than this is. Yeah. Which is why I like it less. Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, the, the sort of um, distancing techniques and the the metafictional aspects of, of the mirror sort of disqualify it from being neorealist, right? Yeah. Uh, even if, in a, in a way, it's like even more neorealist than neorealist, you know? Because it's acknowledging the fact that there's a camera there and stuff. But so this is the same year as Taste of Cherry, mm. which pulls a similar trick, yeah. albeit right at the end of the film. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that they they both ended up doing this in that particular year, maybe independent of one another. I'm not sure, but anyway, the, it'd be funny if in Taste of Cherry, the actor was like, "I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore," and he, he runs off. <laughs> I like that. that. That would be great. I've never contemplated suicide. I'm fine. <laughs> this is dumb. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that Karasami, at least for most of the films that we watch, almost exclusively focuses on like rural settings, except for like, uh, like someone a little bit close up, right? But both of mm-hmm. these and ten, yeah. But both of these films are very urban. Yes. And from from what I know about uh, Panayi's other films, mostly take place in Tehran. Well, does this made you excited to continue to explore his his filmography? Yes, actually. Um, do you want to talk about which films of his we should do next, or do you want to say that for the end? Or 
So we should definitely do the circle, which is the next film. But yeah, let's do the circle encryption in gold next, and then offsetting this is not a film, and then we can do either a closed curtain or taxi in three faces. What's her what's her next sequence? Is it just a uh, fucking goddamn Hollywood moon? That's right, mama. Hollywood moon. Oh god. Who who won? Who won what? I guess he did determine that. Remember? What was her prediction? Oh, that um, that they would sort out the ownership issue. Oh, yes. You, you predicted they would sort it out. I said they would not. And it seems that I have been proven right by time. Well, we still don't know. So it could still be. But, 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 but you know, it is, it is the information that we have available at the moment we record. Yeah. <clears throat> but it seemed to go my way, like, for a moment. Yeah, it did. And now it seems to be going my way. Yeah. So I think I won, which I don't remember if that means I had to choose the, the news item or I don't know. Let me just go to box office Australia. Yeah, let's see. Weekend. Uh, twenty three, twenty five, right? Yeah. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office, Box I believe we'll have a different number one film this week, yeah. as as was last week. All right, ready? Yep. Three, Three two, two, one. one. The number one film in the United States of America is Angel Has Fallen. Oh, great! <laughs> That's number two here, actually. <laughs> two pieces of right wing propaganda. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think I've seen a single Gerard Depper do. <laughs> God, imagine if, if his fat ass was running around doing these movies. Especially, yeah, Gerard Depper now <laughs> running around. That'd <laughs> be great. Um, anyway, I don't think I've seen a single Gerard Butler film besides uh, 300. So. The Ugly Truth. No, haven't seen that. I can tell you what his name in The Ugly Truth is. You can? I think so. I can hear you looking it up. I, That's I believe- cheating. No, no, I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to look it up uh, after I tell you what I think it is. I believe, it, I believe his character name is Mike. My God, if you know that. <laughs> <laughs> what? Once again, a film that I've seen and could not tell you that. Yep. <laughs> I was right. Mike, wait for it. Yep. Mike Chadway. <laughs> I've heard he's a bit of a Chad in that film. That's right. The, look, ready for this? The Mike Chadway character is allegedly based on and inspired by Adam Carolla. <laughs> <laughs> Gerard Butler sat in on the Adam Carolla show. <laughs> in order to prepare for his role. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, um, let's move on from the ugly truth. What 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 news items should we talk about? That that Disney thing happened this week. What thing? Yeah, the the their event like D twenty three or something like that. Oh yeah, and also yeah, like new TV streaming, series, the streaming platform. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember anything that happened. Todd Haynes is a new film that's going to come out this year. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, they released a trailer for or a teaser for the the final Jedi thingamajig, whatever it's called. I, I haven't watched it. Revenge of the Jedi. Revenge of the Jedi. 
Rise of the Skywalker. Um, Rise of the Skywalker. But we got to we got to choose we got to choose one item and then we have to make a prediction about it, which will be solved or not solved. Um, I predict the. No, no, no. We got We got to choose. We got to choose one of these news items. Which news item? Right, how about this? The, it was recently announced that the Irishman, the Martin Scorsese, the second Martin Scorsese film to be t- to come out this year, uh, is going to be three and a half hours long. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> and yes, you are going to have to watch all three and a half hours of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what would you like to predict about this? You. What can we determine by next week about the Irishman? What can we possibly determine? I, I don't know. That there'll be a new show that comes out. That's my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> this is so dumb. Okay, fine. <laughs> you can predict there's a trailer. I predict there won't be a trailer by next week. Yeah, done. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna win this one, bitch. I mean, I guess we got two weeks, right? We got, yeah, two weeks. Well, I guess are we gonna do any of our regular segments of on the show next week? No, we're not. So three weeks. So we have three weeks. <laughs> Wow, that, that puts so the that odds in your favor. You, uh, yeah. All right, fine. I'll, I'll put my life online. But not, that I, not, that, not that I want them to be in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's move on to our uh, penultimate segment. Um, bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. Uh, I watched a couple of films more than last week, which I think I didn't watch ADE, right? Maybe that was... No, I watched a couple. You watched two last week. Uh, maybe I only have two. Yeah, I guess I only have two this week, too. <laughs> uh, so, one of them I've already talked about. I think maybe both of them I've already talked about on the show. I also watched Blinded by the Light, which is going to be a future episode, presumably. So Yes. Uh, we won't discuss that. But uh, I, I went and saw Demon Lover... Um, uh, in a theater, which I guess is, I guess I, I've already I articulated my feelings towards that film. Yes. Um, but something leapt out to me this time, which is the great soundtrack by Sonic Youth. Um, band I'm, I like in spots. I'm not a particular fan of, but it has a really good, moody, sort of uh, noisy buzz soundtrack that I thought was really great. Uh, so I saw this film in 35mm uh, at Lincoln Center because um, they're doing free double features. I've talked about that before, too. But um, now he, there has been a bit character who's entered into my life, right? Which is this bizarre woman who seems to be some sort of gremlin or demon monster um, who, uh, when we watched the movie before the movie started, scared someone off who was sitting next to her. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't able, able to overhear the conversation that preceded this, um, so I can't tell you the reasons for it exactly, but it's very bizarre. And this has happened twice with this woman. Anyway, the other film I watched is The Talking Cat, um, which I, th- I think I've also talked about on the show. Have I? Yeah. I don't know. Have you? It's, it's a really... Uh, probably. I don't know. It's a, it's a great sort of like terrible film. Though I've seen it too many times at this point, it's just kind of boring. So don't watch it as many times Why as I Why did you watch it again? Because my roommate wanted to watch it. Huh. She hadn't seen it before. So you have to sit through the 83 minutes that <laughs> comprises of yeah, Talking I mean, Cat. I, I just, I just uh, went on my computer, so... It does have some transcendently terrible uh, moments, mm. especially whenever the cat talks. It is so bizarre, and, and they just like have looped this footage, and it's great. Uh, there's a scene where the cat has been hit by a car, and there's this really chintzy <laughs> effect where the cat's soul basically goes to heaven, and it's so funny. So, there you go. Cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. My turn. Uh, that's it. You you go, bro. I only watched two films. Mm, two for both. 
Um, I, I re-watched uh, a little film called Jurassic Park <laughs> really? a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. A movie I have never seen. And you know what? I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Say it's trash and you hate it? No, no, no. no. Just, I know this will, this will be very contentious when I'm about to say Oh, my God. Are you going to say Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is a better film than Jurassic no. Park? No, no, no. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to ah. say, are you ready? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. The special effects, which were done in the year 1993. Oh, my God. Wait for it. Wait for it. I have no idea what you could possibly wait be. For it, wait for it. What's going to be next? Wait for it. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a Tinder Rooks man. Finish, finish, finish the, the thought. They're better. Wait for it. Wait, what? Then, oh, then what? Wait, 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 wait. Then wait. Then okay, some wait. of the, the, wait. Then some of the effects. Well, ah, oh, my God. What? In films. Say it. Say it. In the year. No. 2019, which is no. the current year, which is like wow. millions of years after wow. 1993. Wow. And technology's only got better, but somehow Crazy. it's not as good. I can't believe that. that. How could you say something like that? I'm sorry. It just it just came out. <laughs> Great. So, anything else to say about Jurassic no. Park? No. <laughs> That's it. How do, you, how do you feel about it? I, I think it actually still holds up as a film quite mm. well. It's very enjoyable. I, I, just the fact that you've got that cast. And I like pretty much everybody in the cast. Uh-huh. So you've got Laura Dern, you've got Sam Neill, you've got uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh-huh. you've got Samuel L. Jackson, you've got uh, that Attenborough dude putting on a terrible Scottish accent. <laughs> and um, best of all, the uh, MVP in the original Jurassic Park film is Bob Peck's Thighs which he amusingly squeezes into every shot. Uh, by like putting his legs up on the desk and uh, such, and I love Bob, Bob Peck from Edge of Darkness. And lastly, 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 I watched the film Son of Rambo. Oh God, that not to, Rambo, like, like Rambo. Torture. You mean Rambo Last Blood? That's right. <laughs> Are you gonna do that in the show? No. What? Um, <clears throat> Wait, so this we're is not. This is a film directed by. Garth Jennings of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame, of also the Hammer and Tongs music video directing team fame. Mm. And uh, it's okay. This is like the definition of a three-star film, basically. Oh, look at fucking shit to me. It's it's sort of like, I mean, yeah, a lot of it, I'm, I mainly have goodwill towards Garth Jennings and uh, Adam Buxton, who makes a cameo in this film from the world of podcasts and such. And he seems like a genuinely really nice guy whenever you hear him speak. So I sort of, I I came armed with some goodwill. Mm. And uh, this isn't particularly good. It's okay. It's watchable. Uh, It could have been worse. Like shit to me. (laughs) You know, little kids recreating Rambo in uh, on home video. One thing that I do like is the film that they actually make could have plausibly been made by little kids as opposed to, like, mm. pretending that they're cinematic Genius. geniuses and doing, yeah. like, a Michelle Gondry kind of thing with kids. Yeah, yeah. Son of Rambo. <laughs> All right. Uh, are, you, are you fucking ready for... Um... Drag on forever, I'll be So this week's theme is 
Cheetos. <laughs> I can't, I'm always like, here's this obscure series that I like, and you're like, high school poetry, Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so, so I've recently been eating Cheetos, mm. right? And um, the main reason, the main thing that got Have me to, to purchase a packet of Cheetos from the supermarket was uh, its place in American popular culture. You always hear about Cheetos and Cheeto dust and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I, I wanted to know what all the fuss was about. But the problem is we don't quite have the range of Cheetos in Australia that you do in America. It doesn't hold the same place in the snack food. Well, that's because you, were, you live in a country. That's right. Um, and unfortunately, the only Cheetos that I could get here are Cheeto Puffs. Mm. I actually prefer. So we have. I prefer Cheeto Puffs to normal Cheetos. Wow, that is that is this is this is great for this conversation because I'll get to that. Oh boy! So first of all, um, we have had Cheetos before, but we only had one particular product, which I don't think they even make in America, called Cheese and Bacon Balls. Ew. That's the only representation of the Cheetos brand we've ever had in Australia until recently. Yuck. And the reason is, so I think the most famous uh, and the standard variety of Cheetos in America is the, the crunchy ones, right? Yes. Not the puffs. Not the puffs. That's what everyone's sort of talking about and assuming. Yeah, if I say a Cheeto. You just say Cheetos. Yeah. yeah. Now, the reason I think we don't have that here is because we have basically an equivalent product called Twisties, mm. which has been around for years. It was actually invented two years after Cheetos were invented. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of around the same time. And they used to be an Australian-owned company. They're no longer Australian-owned. In fact, they're owned by Frito-Lay, who own Cheetos. Weird. And Frito-Lay itself is owned by Pepsi-Cola, or whatever, the Pepsi-Co, or whatever yeah, the company's yeah. called, the conglomerate. So they own both products. So they own Twisties now, mm -hmm. and they also own the American Crunchy Cheetos. So there's no point really competing with itself, I guess. So I guess we probably won't have any homegrown versions of the Crunchy Cheetos here for some time. Mm. Because Twisties have a cultural hold mm. on the Australian imagination. And they are great. So I wish I could compare the American Crunchy Cheetos to Australia's Twisties and tell well, you just have which to one is better. Well, you to America and bring a bag of no, I, Twisties. I just find one of those international stores that, that has a <laughs> Yeah, one of those Australian, Australian stores. But unfortunately, I've um, decided to use Cheetos this week on the show, so I can't ever return to that topic unless I no, no. talk about it as a meal of the day. Unless I have it for breakfast, so maybe I'll have it for breakfast. I'll have both. I'll have Twisties and Cheetos for breakfast one morning, so I can talk about it on Reels on Meals. But anyway, well, uh, uh, yeah, continue. Actually, I, this is this is not to derail this conversation. Yeah, um, but I was in a bookstore semi recently. And they had an entire section devoted to Australian literature, which I thought was really strange. Wow. Whereas uh, <laughs> the there was a subsection, uh, there's like a subsections under this like big category, but it was just Asian literature and then Australian literature, which I thought was very strange. But Asian literature was obviously divided up into separate countries, what but it was really odd. You can't, you can't mutiny now. We're talking about fucking Cheetos. Sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. We can return to Australian literature after the my, my bad. Time. My bad. Go ahead. 
Um, so, so should I, I try. Should both... I add some uh, time to it? No, I tried both the standard uh, Cheetos and also the flaming hot Cheetos. Mm. I think it's one of the worst like snack foods I've eaten. What to be honest, the puffs or the puffs? Wow. <laughs> well, controversy. Because Disagreement. What, what happens is, like, texturally, it gums up in your yeah, mouth and I, just glues to the top of your teeth. That's what I like about so it. So after you finish eating them, you have to fucking pick your teeth for, like, 20 minutes to get all the remnants out. That's, that's what I like about it, buddy. And I hate that. That's, that's, that, that, that is yeah. a pet peeve of mine. I, and also, I like it. Do you like the Flaming Hot ones? Yeah. I think they're a little bit too hot for me. Um, and that's, you're a cock. That's unexpected. That's unexpected because usually, like, the chili hot flavor of any chip is not particularly hot. Uh-huh. And I eat a lot of chili flavored chips. And I actually didn't think this was particularly oh, hot. Oh, that's it. Oh, friend. Oh.